All right, we do have some outlines from last week. If anybody wants them afterwards, you can pick them up there up here on the table. Uh, we introduced a new series on discipleship, and uh, we're going to be getting into uh, Luke chapter 9 tonight. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke, New Testament. Luke chapter 9. Last week we <coughs> introduced our, our series on discipleship, and we're calling it Be One, Make One. Last week we looked at what it meant to abide in Christ, that disciples abide in Christ, and we, we defined discipleship uh, as the following. A genuine disciple is a follower or worshiper, an imitator of Jesus Christ. A follower, worshiper, an imitator of Jesus Christ. And we just had two simple points that we filled in with some other information, but uh, the first point under the heading was true discipleship has, and we said one entrance, one entrance into discipleship. There's only one way to be a disciple of Christ, and that's to have a correct belief in Jesus. And I say a correct belief in Jesus because there's a lot of people that have incorrect beliefs in Jesus. Uh, and we went through that in depth. And we said that to believe in the New Testament means to fully trust in, to depend on, to rely upon. Uh, it's not just believing the facts about Jesus. That's not going to get you anywhere. Okay, believe really means you have faith in that. And we, we used the example of jumping up on a table saying, well, I believe that table will hold my weight. And if I just sit there and talk about, oh yeah, it would, it would, it would, that's not really faith. That's not really belief according to the Bible. If I actually jump up on the table and show you that I believe, that is the kind of belief we're talking about. And then secondly, we said not only just one entrance to become a disciple, but there's obvious evidence. There's obvious evidence in your life if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And how does that flesh itself out? It fleshes itself out in continued obedience to Jesus. It's not just a one-time knockoff, oh yeah, I'm going to trust Jesus, and then it doesn't affect the rest of your life. It affects the entirety of your life. And so it's this faithful, devoted obedience to Jesus that characterizes what we would call a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And we said that faithful, devoted obedience to Jesus is not just legalism. It's not legalism at all. Uh, and it's not, it has the idea of rejecting license to sin. If you're a faithful, devoted uh, follower of Christ and you're, you're faithfully obeying him, you're not going to use your Christianity as a license to sin. You're not going to look at your, your forgiveness and say, well, God forgave me of all my sins and I'm definitely going to go to heaven, so I'm just going to go do whatever I want. No, that would not be a genuine follower of Christ. And by legalism, we meant the idea of obeying Christ in order for him to forgive you or for him to allow you into heaven or anything like that. See, most world religions operate that way, don't they? You have to jump through the hoop to get the hug. You know, you got to do something. They have their lists of do's and don'ts. In Christianity, basically, we say, well, you just, you just put your faith in Christ. He already did everything for you, right? So it's not a legalistic idea. And then the last thing we said was, as a devoted follower of Christ who's obeying him, you enjoy liberty. So many people think, oh, the Christian life, it, it squashes all the fun and, you know, it restricts you. No, that's the first time that you're actually free to do what God wants you to do. And that's what the Bible says. He who has set you free is what? Set you free indeed, right? And so we saw that disciples abide in Christ. And tonight we're going to see that disciples not just abide in Christ, but they surrender to Christ. And so we're going to look at, at our text in Luke 9. I'm just going to read it and then I'll pray and then we'll get into the study. But here in Luke 9, uh, Jesus really lays out a very uh, blunt truth that true disciples are called to uh, surrender their entire life. He doesn't mask it. He doesn't dumb it down. He doesn't hide it. And so if you look at the text with me, you'll see this. 
um, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, if anyone would come after me, this is Jesus speaking, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Verse 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, the entire world, and loses or forfeits his own soul? Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this word tonight. We pray that you would show us uh, what it means truly to be your disciple, that it does call us to a life of surrender. Uh, we don't just get to do whatever we want uh, because of the grace that you extended to us. We are surrendering ourselves to serve you, uh, to submit to you, um, to resist our own wants and desires and make sure that they are... Um, fashioned in and, and honed in by your desires. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that you would use this time to build us up in our faith. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does it mean to surrender, you might ask? Uh, well, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to cease resistance is one, right? There's a war going on over in Ukraine, and they're trying to, they want to negotiate, they want somebody to surrender, right? Um, they want to cease resistance. One of the sides has to stop resisting the other. Or you could say it means to submit to authority, to submit to authority. Now, the problem we have in our churches today is that we have a wrong view of what it means to come to Christ for salvation. We don't quite understand what Jesus was telling the people here. And what's, I think, most striking about what the Lord calls his disciples to is it really is, is a radical when you stop and think about it it's a radical form of self-denial um, perhaps to the point of dying in other words you're, you're willing to give up your life to be a disciple of christ um, and it also entails living in complete obedience to his commands so there's not a lot of wiggle room here. And, and, and the modern-day churches today don't like that because they, they find that kind of message offensive. Um, and that really puts the true gospel, the one that Jesus preached, in sharp contrast, I think you would agree, with what we see today as the contemporary um, false gospel, pseudo-gospel of self-fulfillment, uh, uh, popularly, that's what people are proclaiming, and uh, a lot of people that call themselves Christians, it's all about them. It's all about them. It's all about having health and wealth and prosperity. And all these false teachers, in effect, view the Lord as little more than, you could say, a, a, a genie in a bottle. That they rub, and the Lord comes out and gives them whatever they want and whatever they wish, and that's, in their mind, that's what Christianity is all about. And that can't be further from the truth from what Jesus was saying here. Uh, some people today claim that Jesus, in Jesus' name, he wants us healthy, he wants us rich, and if they're not, well, it's because somehow we failed to claim these blessings. If you just claim those blessings, then God will give them to you. Once again, he's kind of like a divine Santa Claus. And some other people are just interested in elevating their own self-image um, as if sinners have an issue with humility. Most sinners don't because most sinners are filled with pride, right? Uh, and they don't need more self-love, right? They need denial. They need humiliation. Um, some people have even called, theologians have called for a new reformation, and they, they want to abandon biblical God-centered theology in, in favor of a man-centered theology, in favor of a man-centered salvation. And this is where we hear the term seeker-friendly, right? The seeker-friendly movement came out of basically secular psychology. Started with Robert Schuller down at the Crystal Cathedral. And he found... Jesus' message of the gospel offensive, and so he created his own. And so he thought that if you could just lift people's self-esteem, if you could make them feel better about themselves, 
and you don't talk about sin, you don't talk about all these things, but you're, you're very friendly with people, then eventually people will be elevated to the fulfillment and higher purpose in life. And that's it's just a lie. But that's where the whole seeker-friendly movement came out of. Um, and so we have this kind of Christian narcissism today that really promotes a lot of self-love. And you say, well, shouldn't you love yourself? Well, within reason, yes. I mean, God created you, right? I mean, you shouldn't go around whipping yourself on the back. We don't believe in that. And, and t torturing yourself. That's not what they were talking about. But I think that uh, this new gospel promotes so much self-love that it forgets that, um, you know, there's, there's no satisfaction in God's glory. It's all about what can meet your needs and, and what can Jesus do for you. And the gospel has been presented to people this way for years now. And so when they hear a gospel that's true from the Bible, something that Jesus says, like these words that we're going to look at tonight, um, they just cover their ears and say, wow, that's offensive. We don't want to hear that. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes Timothy, and he says, But understand this, that in the last days, and we are in the last days, these are the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then he says in verse 2, 2 Timothy 3, 2, For people will be, what's it say, lovers of self. Lovers of self. We live in a very self-dominating, love-dominating society today. Um, there was a prayer that was penned by Arthur Bennett. It was written in the Valley of the Vision. And it kind of is, it speaks of the, the paradoxes in our faith. And it talks a little bit about the difference between today's man-centered false gospel and the attitude of, that Jesus requires for true saving faith. And the poem it goes like this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let me learn by paradox. And then he says this, that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches, riches in my poverty, thy glory in my humiliation. That's really what our faith is about. But that's not what you hear today. That is not what you hear today. It's kind of... You know, a good illustration of this is, you know, remember when you became a parent. You know, some of you have had children, and you know what it means to be a parent, and even a grandparent now. But when you become a parent, you have to surrender a lot, do you not? You have to surrender a lot of things. I mean, life changes as soon as that little baby is in the world, as soon as that baby is born. You have to completely surrender your time. Your time is not your own anymore. Um, it's no longer what you want to do. Uh, when you have a child, you have to think of that child. You know, you can't just say, hey, let's go to the movies for three hours, you know, when you have a little baby. Because why? The baby's not going to be quiet for three hours in a movie theater. And there's going to be a lot of angry movie watchers if you take your child to the movies. And they're crying the whole time or whatever. Uh, there's no such thing, really, when you have that small of a child and even toddlers and things like that as extracurricular activities. You just can't pick up and do whatever you want, right? The, the child's on a schedule. Um, even when you go to the bathroom, moms, you understand. You, you run to the bathroom and you lock yourself in there and you, you, you're just thinking, okay, I'm safe in here. And pretty soon you hear the little voice and then the little fingers trying to reach under the door, right? And, and they find you. Okay, there's no privacy anymore at all. Um, you surrender your money. Uh, diapers are not cheap. Raising a child is not cheap. 
for the next 18 years, you're committing to an overwhelming task. Um, you remember, you surrender your sleep, do you not? Uh, Kai and Fanoa and Marianne are going to find this out pretty soon. You surrender your patience, which goes along with your, with your sleep, really. Um, but some people think, oh, having a child, it won't change my life at all. It changes it radically. It changes it radically. And you know what? You can have that same mindset whenever it comes to surrendering our life to Christ. There are people who come to Christ and think, ah, oh, it's no big deal. Just get my sins paid for and I'll move on. And that's an incorrect way of thinking of a commitment to Christ because we think at times that we're not going to have to give up too much. And see, the dangerous thing is, is that if, if we see Jesus as a supplement to our lives, it's just, he's just something we're adding to our life, right? That's not true salvation. We've really un failed to understand what it means to have a relationship with him. Because Jesus did not come here to just improve portions of your life. That's not why he died on the cross. He's not a supplement. He's our what? He's our savior. He's our savior. He came here to give us new life because our lives were so messed up, we couldn't reform them. We had to be what? Born again, born anew. And that's what Jesus came to do, to raise us, the Bible says, from what? From death to life. And so Jesus isn't here just to add something to your present life so that it can be a little more tolerable to live on this earth. That's not why Jesus came. And so here in our text, in Luke 9, Jesus is talking here. He's about ready to talk to this crowd of people. And he's going to tell them, as we read here, if you want to be my disciples, if you want to come after me, here's the standard. Here's what it's going to take you to do it. We don't hear this too much today. Uh, so we're going to spend a little time here and just see what he says. Now, remember, we, we see, like, for example, here in the Gospels, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, which is about 20, 27,000 hungry people because they had, men had families with them. Um, and some of these people were just there for a free lunch. That's what they were there for. Hey, this guy feeds us. We'll hang around with Jesus. <coughs> and so he finds this. He's here in Caesarea Philippi, which is a beautiful, it's a lush area. And it's also the culture of, of really pagan worship is what's kind of just ingrained in this culture. And so he asked them this, this question in, in the other parts of the gospel, he, he asks his followers, who do you say that I am? Remember that? Who do you say that I am? And, and Peter, being Peter, blouts, you know, just kind of just shouts it right out, and he's right. He says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, you're right, but you know what? You can't tell anyone yet. <laughs> now think about this. How, how difficult this would be. You're, you're hanging around with God, who's the Messiah, and then he says, you know, I'm going to have to go and suffer. I'm going to have to go and die, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. Um, so, you know, don't let this spread yet. That would be difficult. But Jesus predicted his own death for the first time here in Luke chapter 9. And we know that when he turns his view to the crowd, uh, because he had this intimate moment with his disciples, and now he turns to the crowd. And rather than waiting for an invitation from these sinners to Jesus, he issues his own invitation to the crowd in a form of a command to repent. He tells them to repent, to believe, to fully, you could say, surrender their lives to him. And so he's saying here in our text, if you want eternal life, if you want salvation... If you desire to have all of your sins <clears throat> forgiven, past, present, future, if you want to come one day into the eternal kingdom of God and receive blessing and peace and joy forevermore in my presence, Jesus says, okay, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. And so he doesn't pull any punches. He is about to lay out here in Luke 9 the high cost of what it means to surrender and follow him. The good news Jesus preached 
is the truth that God offers forgiveness of all sin and that, that gift of eternal life to those who genuinely follow him in faith. And it, it calls for an absolute, total abandonment of oneself. We find this hard to stomach. Um, but Paul even wrote this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And what? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So even the Apostle Paul says, look, I don't have my own agenda. I'm sure he could have come up with his own agenda. <laughs> I mean, he, was a, he used to be a Pharisee, probably a very talented leader. But he could have come up with his own agenda, but he said no. The life I live is not up to me. It's, I'm living for Christ because I'm one of his followers. And so let's look at this first point here in your outline. A disciple of Christ is called to surrender, and then I put in there personally, personally. And we see it there in our first text in verse 23. He says, if anyone would come after me, uh, I want to stop right there for a moment, and it, it kind of says anyone would or anyone would desire to come after me. He's extending this open invitation to everyone, not just his little intimate group, but everyone who's gathered there. The open invitation to surrender personally and follow Jesus Christ is open to everyone. Don't ever forget that. Sometimes we have a tendency in our theology to think, well, but God elected some, so I understand that. I believe that too. But don't ever think that the invitation by Jesus to salvation is somehow skewed. That it's not genuine. When, when Jesus offered Judas repentance, it was a genuine offer. Jesus didn't say, Judas, are you really going to do this? You know, he, he offered him, when you follow the life of Judas and Jesus, you see several times where Jesus appeals to him. You're really going to do this? You know, yeah, you, you don't have to. He's given him an opportunity to what? Repent. And yet, the Bible says that even before the foundation of the world, Judas was set out as the son of perdition. So how does that go together? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't understand it. But see, to think that Jesus somehow was lying to Judas. Somebody once asked, if Judas would have repented, would he have been saved? Yes. Well, how does that fly? I don't know. I don't know how God would have made that work. But yes. So when we offer salvation to someone, we can't allow the doctrine of our belief in election to get in the way of that. Because we don't know. We don't know what God's doing. We have, to, we have to preach and we have to invite people to come to Christ. And that invitation is open to anyone. Anyone. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what you did in life. And so Jesus sets up this invitation and he's making it clear that we all have this invitation. Um, and, you know, I... I Remember when I gave my life to Christ and how he changed me as an individual. It wasn't just all overnight in that moment. It happened over years, and he's continuing to change and conform me into the image of Christ, as he is yourselves. But as Jesus is giving this invitation, he lays out a picture of what following him is going to look like. And I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, I didn't fully understand what I was signing up for. I really didn't. I understood that I was a sinner, and I was on my way to hell, and I didn't want to go there. As a good Catholic, I didn't want to go to hell. So I thought, well, what do I do? And the pastor said, you need to put your faith, your trust in Christ for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, because you're a sinner. And as much as I didn't like being called a sinner, I didn't think I was a sinner, eventually the Lord showed me, yes, you are a sinner, and you need forgiveness of your sins. So I turned to Christ, I asked him to save me, and he did just that. But what does it mean to surrender personally? Because right there in verse 23, look at what it says. It says, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. 
The word deny literally means to, to disown. To disown. It's a very, very, very strong word that's used to describe this here. It's the same word that's used when Peter denies that he knew Jesus. Remember? When Jesus said, hey, you're going to deny me three times, and then the rooster, all that stuff. Well, here, uh, it's the same word that he vehemently denies knowing Christ. He even curses and says, I never knew the man. You know, he gets upset. He gets angry. Um, it's the same word that reprobates who permanently deny Christ in Luke 12, 9, Titus 1, 16, things like that. It's the same word that's used for them. They're denying Christ. It's the same word that's used when John the Baptist insists that he was not the Messiah. Remember when they were saying, are you the Messiah? John the Baptist, he was the forerunner to Jesus. And people looked at him and they thought, wow, this must be the Messiah. And he said, no, he absolutely denied it. That's the same word. It can be even translated disowned as it is in the reference to Israel's rejection of Jesus in Acts 3. Um, See, to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to disown, you can say it this way, one's natural, depraved, sinful self. You're disowning yourself. It is to give up all dependence on and all confidence in oneself. And one's work to save you. See, many people in the world today think that somehow they're going to save themselves. They're going to somehow work this out with God. They're going to do a backroom deal or something, and there's got to be a side door that gets into heaven. No, like we said last week, there's only one entrance. That's the proper belief in Christ, a commitment to Christ. And here, it's, it's very important that we understand when we're following Jesus, he doesn't say, oh, you can follow me sometime. You know, just pray a little prayer. Just raise your hand. Close your eyes. Nobody look. You know, he, he's never done that ever in the Gospels. When he called his disciples to follow them, follow him, I mean, they had careers. They had families. They had lives. And what did he tell them to do? Leave it. They left their fishing. And you think, well, they probably weren't that rich being a fisherman. How about Matthew? He was a tax collector. He was very, very, very wealthy. He made a lot of money, cheated a lot of people, took advantage of a lot of people as a tax collector. Very high in society. Guess what? He walked away from the whole thing. Okay? Luke was a doctor. I mean, you have all these different people that follow Christ from different professions and different backgrounds, and they all gave up everything and relied totally upon, depended totally upon set their confidence in themselves aside and look to Christ to save them. And Jesus is saying here, listen, if you want to be my disciple, it means that you completely deny any fleshly uh, desires uh, and, and, and anything that's contrary, you could say, to the ways of Christ. You reject those. Uh, he's not talking about denying yourself of a cupcake. You know, well, I'm going to suffer for Jesus. I'm going to deny my... No. You know, it's, and, and I, I say that because growing up in the Catholic Church, we had a thing we called Lent. And, and it was a period of time right before Easter. And so for Lent, you had to suffer. So to suffer, you'd have to give something up. And for some unknown reason as a child, I'd always give up candy. And then we created some rule that on Sunday you could eat it. You can eat whatever you give up for Lent, but the rest of the time it was off the charts. And so, you know, I remember g giving up candy, and I'm thinking, I love candy. Why would I give candy up? Well, I'm suffering for Jesus, you know. And I cheated, and, you know. But, I mean, it paid off because Easter came, and my sister-in-law would have tons of candy for us on Easter Day. And it was, a, it was a big payoff. We were in, like, sugar, you know, sugar comatose. It was crazy. Um, but he's not talking about denying yourself of things like that. He's not saying you have to, you know, deny yourself of, of these things. You can still eat your cake, all right? You can still have your cupcake. But it's, it, it's really, in the original context here, what Jesus is saying is, listen, you have to deny yourself um, of everything that makes up your identity. Every, everything that, that makes up who you are 
Jesus is telling his followers, he's telling the crowd, that our new identity is to be surrendered to him. You live for the audience of what? One. The audience of one. And that's Christ. If we, if we follow ourselves, what do we do? We put ourselves on the throne, right? And, and we begin to believe that life is all about us. Uh, I used to ask young people as a youth pastor when they were in high school, well, what do you want to do with your life? And they'd always go, oh, I want to go to college. I want to do this. You know, I want to do that. I want to do this. And I always thought, that's such a stupid question to ask another Christian. What do you want to do with your life? Because guess what? It doesn't really matter what you want to do with your life. It's not about that if you're a follower of Christ. The proper question would be, what does God want you to do with your life? That would be a more biblical approach to that question, would it not? And it's not that God drags us down the road of, you know, whatever. I mean, I was deathly afraid after I became a Christian that God was going to send me to some remote part of Africa where I could never take a shower. You know, I just was freaked out over that. And I just thought, oh, Lord, please, I'll do anything. But no, I I don't want to go to a place that is just, you know, and who knows? God could still send me there. So I, I, you know, I'm holding my breath as even as I say that. But it's, it's, it's important to understand that when you come to Christ, you're surrendering your own wants, your own desires, because you're surrendering to him what? Personally. See, what you want to do with your life may not be what I want to do with my life. And so you can't really put a, a label on it. But if you want to do it personally, Jesus is saying, yeah, you have to surrender that. Uh, now, self would say, oh, if I just fulfill myself in this, you know, before I became a believer, I was all about lights and sirens. You know, I wanted to be a police officer, so I went to college and got a degree in criminology and was going down that road. And then I met Jesus, and, and he didn't change that desire. You know, if an ambulance goes by or a, a police car goes by with a siren on, I mean, I, my neck jerks, even to this day. You know, what's going on? When with sirens, you hear sirens down here. I mean, it takes everything within my thing, even on a Wednesday night teaching Bible study, not to go over and look out the window. What's going on? I want to know. You know, um, it's just attractive to me, okay? But when I became a believer, I had to kind of understand that, well, is this what God wants you to do? Is this what God wants you to do? Or is this just what you want to do? Because when we put ourselves on the throne of our own lives and we, it becomes all about us, that's the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to do here, and that is surrender personally. See, because whenever we surrender personally, um, self would say, listen, all, all, you, all, all you have to do is just, just be happy. Just focus on yourself. You know, this is what the world tells us. But whenever we surrender personally, our outlook, our identity, everything that is about us becomes totally about, about Christ. What pleases Christ? And you set your own desires, your own wishes aside. That's what it means to surrender yourself. It's all about Christ. It's what would please him. Um, When we say, it comes down to, to self, am I pleased with this? Am I pleased with my life, the way it's working out? Um, you know, that's really a wrong approach for a believer. It's, it's when we surrender personally, is Christ pleased with this? I may not be pleased with it. It may not make me happy, but that's irrelevant. That's irrelevant. It's a big difference there. Um, when we surrender our claim to ourself and to our own desires and our own ambitions and our own personal goals, what are we doing? We're submitting them to Christ. Now, it's not wrong to be an engineer. It's not wrong to be a dentist or a lawyer. Well, maybe a lawyer, but, you know, just kidding. But, you know, it's important to understand that God has a, a myriad of ways that he wants to use you and your giftedness in a way that would honor him. It may be in a way that you desire. It may be in a way that wouldn't be your first pick. 
But see, it doesn't matter because you're really submitting all that to the Lord. You're submitting them to Christ and you're saying, okay, God, you created me. You know how you made me. And you know what? Um, I just want to be used for your glory. Um, not in a million years would I ever have dreamed or desired that one day I would be teaching in a church on a regular basis every week. That is so far from who I am as an individual, you don't even understand. That's not what my desire is. But that's what God has me doing. And it's not that I hate it. Don't get me wrong. Because I know that God is using me in people's lives, and that's very rewarding, right? So he, he curtails your, your wants and your desires, but you know what? I mean, and, and, and now I look at it, and I, I watch some of these police shows and things like that, and I'm like, thank God. Thank God. Praise the Lord I did not go down that road. Because I could tell you very honestly, with my temperament and with who I am, if I was a police officer, I'd probably be a police officer for about a year, and I'd end up in jail. Because <laughs> I wouldn't put up with this stuff. I, I, would not, I would not survive this culture. I would not survive it. And that's why there's so many in law enforcement, by the way, that are, are retiring early. That's why we have the, the crisis that we have, right? We've created this crisis um, because they're not allowed to do what they're supposed to be doing. So God gifts us all in different ways, and we just have to learn that, you know what, when we surrender to him personally, you have to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Um, because when we deny ourselves, we deny what the culture is telling us about ourselves and the things that we should love. Because the culture constantly is giving us a message. Right? Whether it's through advertising, whether it's what, it's giving us a message. You're not satisfied. Don't be satisfied with who you are. You need this, you need that. All these things. That's what the world does. And yet in 1 John chapter 2, John points out to us in verse 15. I'll just read these verses for you. They speak for themselves. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. And then he says this, if anyone loves the world, clearly the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, you can't, you can't love both. One is eternal, one is material. One is eternal, one is temporal. One is spiritual, one is material. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, everything, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And then he says, in case we forgot, verse 17, and the world, by the way, is passing away. It's temporary. It's not going to be here along with its desires. But look at what he says. But whoever does the will of God abides what? Forever. Forever. Um, everything that entices us in this world, we just have to get it through our heads. And it's hard. Because, you know what, we like new things. We like, you know, fresh things, whatever. But it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. It's all going to be left behind. I've never seen a U-Haul going behind a hearse at a funeral, you know. Oh, yeah, we're going to, he's taking this with him. You know, no, you're going to leave it all behind. Everything. Um, and we can be guilty when we surrender personally. We can be guilty of loving the wrong things. Right? Because we have a really messed up idea of what love is. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Remember the song? You know? Now, I mean, our, our culture will tell us what love is if we allow it to. You should love this. You should love that. Love is a feeling. But guess what? Our feelings change. You know, do I love my wife? Does my wife love me? Yes. Are there times when I get that look from her? And I know she's not loving me at that, ten, that time. Yeah. <laughs> she's not feeling very loving toward me, right? But I know in my heart she still loves me. Why? Because love is a feeling. Love changes. 
the culture can be right with that, but love is really what? Action. Love is, the Bible says, love is God. Being committed to God. Not to just feel like you love God. A love for God starts with what? With the denial of yourself. With denial of yourself. It's not about us. It's about him. It's all about his desires. And Jesus says here, the first step to following him is to deny yourself, to surrender personally. You have to surrender the right to rule your own lives. And I understand this is very difficult. This is not an easy thing to do. Why? Because we like to be in control of our lives. But we have to refuse to go our own way. And if we call ourselves Christ followers, as many do, we have to see this denying is an active word. It's not like, oh, I denied myself and I came to Jesus and now I'm just going to live for me. <laughs> no, no, that's not true salvation. That's, that's not the salvation of the Bible. You don't just deny yourself once. This is a, an ongoing action in the original language. It, with, with your approach to life in this context, when Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, here's the bar. If you want to be my follower, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself continually. <laughs> continually. And he says there's two ways to live. Either you live for yourself or you can deny yourself when it comes to following Christ. Discipleship is surrendering personally to Christ. And so Jesus, right here to this crowd, he's not having them line up, and he's not giving them applications to fill out. Oh, you want to be on my team? You want to be a follower of me? Here, fill this out. He's not saying, hey, you have to have a good resume. I'm concerned with your background there. You know, how's your IQ? No, that, none of that matters. What he's saying is, I don't require those things for you to follow me, but I do require that you deny yourself, which is far greater when you stop and think about it. I mean, he has set the bar high, but he did not exclude intelligence. He didn't exclude appearance. He didn't exclude handicapped or social status. Because when we surrender personally, surrender personally, personally, whenever we follow Jesus, it starts with an attitude of humility. Um, I put this quote in your, your notes there by C.S. Lewis. I love this quote. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That is so true. That is so true. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Um, if there was only a model for this that we could follow, somebody who showed us an example, we'll turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and follow along as I read verses 3 to 8, because we see this very clearly here. Paul writes, Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3, 2, 3, Philippians, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Wow. That's a tall order right there. And then he continues, he said, verse 4, Let each of you look not on his own interests, only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. What's he saying? He's saying, get over yourselves. There's more important people than yourself. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Where does it come from, Paul? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, God would never tell us to do something that we are not equipped to do. He wouldn't do that. He always equips us to do what he calls us to do. Verse 6, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, and then he describes Christ as our example, though he was in the form of God, he was completely God, he was God in a bod, human body, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, you know what, he was willing to give up a little something to come down here and confine himself to a human body for 33 years, even though he was God. That would be hard to do, but he did it. 
He says he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. You say, wow, he really doesn't think a lot of us, does he? No, but he does because he created us. We're his creation. He's not putting down men there. He's just saying, you have to understand, I am God and you're a human. There's a big difference. And unfortunately today, sometimes even in people's theology, they, they get mixed up in that. And they begin to think they're God. No. Big, big difference between God and man. And there always will be, by the way. Yes, we'll, we'll be complete in Christ one day when we have our glorified bodies. We will be like Christ. We will have the mind of Christ, even the Bible says. But we will not be Christ. <laughs> We will not be God. We'll still be a human in a glorified body. And then he says in verse 8, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, <coughs> even death on a cross. See, this is the first step that, that Jesus wants us to know. Jesus can't be on the throne if we're sitting on the throne. It's that simple. We have to be subservient to him. It's all about Christ. That's why we're called Christians, right? Um, you surrender personally, and when you surrender personally, everything changes. Your whole mindset changes. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to what? To present your bodies as a living Listen, sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, he says. And then he says this in verse 2. Don't be conformed, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by, the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, there's, there's a change that happens when you commit your life to Christ. It happens through a transformative process that God does in the human heart. You can't make this happen on your own. God does this for us. So we surrender to Christ personally when we're his disciples. Secondly, we surrender daily. And these next two go a little quicker. We surrender daily. Um, it says there, take up his cross when? Daily. Daily. It's not like, oh, okay, I just got to die on the cross once and then, nope, daily. You're daily dying to yourself over and over and over and over again. That's what the Christian life is all about. We've heard, we've seen this verse so many times, uh, you know, you, you've heard uh, familiarity breeds, what, contempt, right? We, we, we begin to just say, oh, that's not that big of a deal. It's a major deal. When Jesus says you have to take up your cross daily, I mean, you just have to stop and think about what that meant in the culture, right? What does it mean to take up your cross? What was Jesus talking about? Jesus wasn't even crucified yet. He was just predicting his death. I mean, did these crowds even understand what he was saying? Was Jesus speaking prophetically? Did his listeners know immediately what this meant? Because when you say take up your cross, it meant one thing. You're, you're going to die a horrible death, a crucifixion. And to do that over and over and over to someone would be unspeakable. I mean, it was, it was bad enough to do, go through crucifixion once because you, didn't, you, didn't, you died. You were dead. But here he's saying you've got to do it daily. See, people in Jesus' day were not sitting around drinking their tea. Well, what does this mean to take up your cross? I wonder... I wonder what Jesus meant. No, they, they knew perfectly well what it meant. And they weren't wearing gold crosses around their necks. I mean, that would be a horrible offense to someone. That was an instrument of death. So when he says, you know what? Take up your cross. He, he's really saying, just denying yourself. It, it, it's, it's, it's denying yourself of, of all these things, but even it may come that you have to deny yourself of your own life for my sake. That's really what he wanted them to understand. This may cost you your life 
to follow Christ. And in case you say, well, that's a little far-fetched, it's not. I mean, there are people um, in India today that are suffering um, because they're Christians. They're dying. People are slaughtering them because of their faith in Christ. This is not something that's far-fetched. Um, but this was the most horrific, humiliating kind of execution that there could have been. And this is what Jesus says you have to do daily if you want to follow him. Um, I mean, they, they thought Jesus was going to come and what? Be their wonderful leader. He was going to march into Jerusalem. He was going to overthrow the Roman government. And he was going to set himself up as king. And they were going to be his little kingettes all around him. And they were going to take over. That's what they thought. That's what the disciples thought. That's what all these followers of Christ thought he was going to do. And even though he told them, listen, you don't understand. I'm going to Jerusalem, but I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to die there. They didn't hear that part. Now, he even told them, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. They didn't get that part either. They were expecting a political king to restore the throne of David. That's what they were expecting. I mean, do you ever ask yourself why those of the Jewish faith miss Jesus entirely? They just completely miss him. Completely. I mean, why do they go in the Gospels from people who are laying down palm branches and shouting Hosanna to, within a matter of days, crucify him? What happened? I really believe the reason they missed Jesus is a lot like our culture even today. See, people today are looking for a political savior. They're looking for somebody that's going to come down the pike and make everything good on this earth. They're not looking for a personal savior that's requiring something of them. No, they're looking for a political savior. I mean, how much stock do we put in, into politics today? Think about it. Everybody's consumed with it. And even though they keep leaving it, letting us down, letting us down, letting us down, we keep on, oh, no, if we, if we just get this one elected, if we just get that one elected. No. Jesus is saying, look, I am not your political savior. I am your personal savior. I have not come here to give up my life to be something that you add so that you can have a more comfortable life here on earth. I'm not a supplement. I'm a savior. And there was no way that they were probably expecting this in this culture. Jesus really dropped some crazy thoughts on these people, and it just kind of blew their minds. They just thought, wow, this, how, how could this happen? And so Jesus is calling his followers to expect to have painful circumstances, to be expecting of trials and tribulations. He says, you're going to suffer. He even says, look at what they did to me. Wait till they get their hands on you. I mean, this is kind of what his message was to his followers. <clears throat> Not only are you going to have to deny yourself, but following Jesus is going to cost you everything. Everything. Because of your surrender to Christ, it's going to cost you daily. You know, you hear people today saying, you know, they get a little pushback at work or, or something happens in their life. And, you know, you hear this phrase all the time. Well, that's, I'm just bearing my cross. <laughs> you have no idea. That, that's, that's, that is so far, far removed from what it means to suffer for Christ. Um, just because you go through a rough time at the water cooler because you try to witness to somebody, that's not what he's talking about here. He's literally talking about what if it came down to the point of actually having to give up your life to follow Christ. What would happen? That's what this means. That's what it was in their day. In our day, we think, well, that would never happen here. Are you serious? It's, we're getting close, folks. We're getting very close. I mean, we, we think that if we're going through some kind of persecution well, then God owes me. I'm suffering for Jesus. You know, it's kind of like he's a vending machine. And we go and let's see, okay, A12, uh, I want happiness. You know, A10, you know, maybe I want a new car or a new marriage or whatever. Um, 
I mean, somebody might here tonight lose their job. That's a horrible thing. You might lose your job. And you know what? Maybe at first, first week, I, I got to work it out. It's not a big deal. Got to work it out. And then maybe, you know, time goes by, six weeks, maybe three months. And you're thinking, wow, you know, the savings is depleting. I don't know what I'm going to do. And you begin to ask the question, where's the provision, God? Where's the provision? Six, seven months. God, are you there? Where are you at? <laughs> right? You're still unemployed. Unemployment's running out. Maybe the 10-month 10, 10 mark, finally, you shake your fist at God and you're angry. Where are you? Right? Why didn't you provide? That's how we think of God. And God never really promised us those things. He said, I'll give you your basic sustenance. Or maybe we find that individual, that husband or that wife, and we get married and we think, wow, this is... This is God's gift. This is wonderful. Spend the rest of our lives together. And five to ten years in, God, was this really your plan? This is kind of feeling like a thorn in the flesh at this point. Now, all your husbands, we're not talking about your marriages, of course not. But I'm just saying, this is reality. And Jesus says, you know what? It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. If you signed up and you're following me, you have to be willing to follow him no matter what the cost is. You know, when you get married, it's till what? Till death do you part. I mean, that's the common idea of marriage. But we've lost that somewhere. Now it's like, well, until it's no fun anymore, <laughs> then I'll go find somebody else. And sometimes people treat Jesus that way and their relationship with Jesus that way. Jesus and his disciples must be willing to follow him no matter what the cost is. Life is going to be hard. Life is hard. And so many times I think in our own culture with this prosperity gospel floating around, you know, we're, we're telling people, if you just accept Jesus, if you just commit to Jesus, then everything's going to be fine. <laughs> and then everything gets worse. <laughs> in their lives after they commit to Christ. And we forgot to tell them that. In John chapter 15, Jesus says this in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Jesus says, therefore the world hates you. Verse 20, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will, keep, they will also keep yours. See, surrendering everything to Christ is hard. It's definitely hard. Denying yourself is hard. Taking up your cry, cross is hard. Uh, the world is hard. But 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul writes, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, guess what? Will be persecuted. I get really worried when I hear Christians say, Oh, I don't have any problem with persecution in my life at all. <laughs> never have, never will. Well, maybe they're not living for Christ. Maybe they're not pushing back against the culture. Maybe they're just saying what everybody wants to hear. Um, now, Jesus isn't telling us, oh, you have to live a life of hardship. He's not saying that. He's not saying you have to crawl on your knee for miles to earn my grace or anything like that. But he is saying that there will be a affliction in your daily life. It may not be physical all the time. It could be spiritual. It could be emotional. It could be financial. It could be different things, different times. But because we live in this culture, it will definitely push back on us. Discipleship is hard. It really is. And, and this is not something that, a message that's here to win, win friends and influence people. We're not about that. You know, but we want to share the truth with you. And these are the words of our Savior. These aren't things I made up. This is what he says very clearly. Well, the third thing here that he says is not just surrender personally and not just surrender daily, but lastly, 
surrender obediently. Look at what he says. He says, and what? Follow me. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross daily, and you have to follow me. And once again, this is in the, the present active tense in the original language, which means you have to continue to follow. This isn't just, you know, um, a one-time, one-stop shop Jesus kind of a thing. Uh, this is, you've got to surrender personally. You've got to deny yourself continually. And there's this ongoing response to take up your cross and to follow him. Both are necessary. Both are, are this ongoing fellowships with Christ. We should always surrender our desires. We should always surrender our decisions to Christ. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we desire. Now, when you come to Christ, it's a decisive choice, but it's also followed by continual discipleship. Uh, I think in Hebrews chapter 4, he tells us that Christ was tempted in every way, but he was without sin. So we have a Savior who understands what it means to be on this earth and what it means to deal with the temptations and all the, the, the fleshly desires, everything. He understands that completely, and yet he did so without sin because he was perfect. Um, and, and what's interesting to me is that and I think it really makes this, this passage here in Luke so beautiful, is that he's calling us to deny ourselves, right? Yet, we will never deny ourselves in a greater manner than he denied himself. He's calling us to deny ourselves, but he will never call us to deny ourselves in a greater manner than he denied himself. Because he already paid for our sin. And that's the whole attitude of Christ that Philippians 2 talked about that is our example that we should desire to follow. When we follow Jesus in obedience, we're going to go through some hard stuff. We just are. And Jesus never promised an easy life. He never said it was going to be a bed of roses. Matter of fact, he said just the opposite. He said you will have persecution, you will have suffering. But you know what? Remember, this earth is temporal. Eternity is just that. It's eternal. And we need to make sure that we understand that this obedience that he calls us to requires daily action. We have to be vigilant. We have to be on guard. You can't rest in your Christian faith. You, just, you can't stop and say, okay, I've arrived at this plateau. I'm just going to relax here for a while. You can't do that especially in the days we live. And so a true relationship with Christ will, I believe, motivate us to actions of obedience. If we have a true relationship with Christ, if we're truly his disciples, these, these, these actions of obedience will just flow out of our life. The problem is a lot of people think that it's just the opposite. They look at, at, at actions of obedience establishing a relationship with Christ. In other words, it's, it's what I'm doing in my, my Christian faith that's saving me. No, it's just the opposite. It's what Christ has done for us that saves us. Our relationship with Christ should motivate our actions for him. And he says in John, and close with this, John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I don't know about you, but I want to be honored by the Father one day. And so that calls us to a life of surrender. It calls us to a life of denying ourselves, of taking up our cross and following him. And, and this is what discipleship is about. This is what it means to be a true follower of Christ. There's a lot of people that call themselves Christian. There's a lot of people that call themselves disciples. But when you see these qualities in their lives, then you can honestly say, wow, okay, this is the true deal. This is real. And you can know that in your own heart, too, when you're seeking to do what Christ wants you to do, not just what your own desires are calling you to do. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We pray, Lord, that you would 
uh, help us to take these hard words, really, that are, that are very, um, set a standard very high for us. And Lord, help us to um, set our own desires aside. Lord, what's, what's ironic in all this is sometimes when we do set our desires aside, um, then you fulfill our desires. I know that when I turned away from criminology and police work and went into Bible study and trying to learn what it means to be a pastor and youth minister, I still desired to be part of that law enforcement community and somehow. And yet it was only when I totally yielded that to you that you allowed me to um, get hired with a local law enforcement agency at one point in my life and get a taste of that and, and get that out of my system. Lord, you do give us the desires of our hearts. But as a disciple, we want our desires to be your desires, not just ours. And so, Lord, I pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, could filter those out and uh, make sure that we are pursuing what you desire us to pursue. And we pray for any here tonight who may need to put their faith, their trust in Christ and in Christ alone. He calls upon you to repent. He calls upon you to turn from your sin to him as the Savior and to yield your life to him. And he will change you. He will save you. He will transform your heart and mind and give you the Holy Spirit to give you insight and understanding of his word. That's a promise. And you just cry out to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a sinner. And he will save you. And we thank you and pray that you just bless our conversation now and the rest of our evening. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.